Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcasts, or find us on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Now let's take a listen. Welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice here at Lowenstein Sandler. And today I am very pleased to welcome back David Anderson, who is VP of Cyber at Woodruff Sawyer. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks for having me back, Linda. And I'm also pleased to welcome back Heather Weaver, who is counsel in our insurance recovery group. So thanks for coming on back, Heather, onto the show. Thanks, Linda. Looking forward to continuing the conversation. All right. Well, last time we talked about the use of Pixel and other tracking devices on all of our shopping activities, our medical activities, or anything related to the internet activities, tracking our boxes as they're coming to our homes. And we talked a lot about what are these claims? Why is the plaintiff's bar interested in pursuing those claims? And we started to scratch the surface of what insurance coverage is available. And I think the key highlight of that discussion on the insurance end is this is pretty complicated. There are a number of different policies that you can look at to potentially access coverage. And today, I'd really like to take our listeners into a deeper dive on what to look for in these coverage grants so that we can trigger the coverage. And then, of course, we're going to have to talk about the rabbit holes that the insurers like to try to jump down after we're able to trigger the coverage grant. And then we'll take a a quick look at where this is all headed, given the size and scope of these liabilities. So, Heather, let's just go by way of review. What types of policies are going to be triggered by that putative class action lawsuit for uh, the use of a tracking device? And what are some of the coverage grants that will be triggered by those cases? Yeah, sure. So it's important to look at all of your insurance coverage or or most of your insurance coverage trying to figure out what type of policy could apply to these types of claims, because you really might be surprised when you actually take a deep dive, a deep review into these policies, that something, a policy you might not expect to provide coverage for this type of claim might actually provide coverage even through an endorsement or some sort of addition to the policy. And so as we discussed last time, the first place that you would want to look is your cyber policy. That's the most obvious place to look given the type of claim that we're dealing with here. But professional liability policies such as errors and omissions and directors and officers policies might also cover these types of claims. You'd also want to look at your, your CGL general liability policies management liability policies, any media liability policies that you might have, and even a crime policy might cover these types of claims. Within these policies, you'll see several different types of coverage grants that might cover the claims. You might see multiple coverage grants within a single policy that might cover these types of claims. So it's important to do, again, a thorough review of not only the main policy, but also any endorsements that might have been added to the policy that might provide additional relevant coverage. And we touched on some of these already in in the prior episode, but to name 
a couple of the most relevant or common coverages to look for within these types of policies for, for tracking claims. You would want to look at potential media liability coverage that would typically cover privacy violations. You would want to look at data and network liability coverage, privacy and network security liability coverage, which typically you know, protects insureds against losses for failure to protect customers from personally identifiable information, such as social security numbers, credit card numbers, medical information, things like that, sensitive information. You would also want to look at professional liability coverages, particularly if you have a claim in the healthcare sector. And if, as we discussed previously, sometimes professional liability policies have cyber coverage within them. And so there are many different coverages to look for within these policies. Yep. So you just threw a lot at us. And Dave, as the broker that's going to place these policies in the first instance, even before the claim comes in, what are some of the kinds of things that we're going to want to look for in these coverage grants and that and that you as the broker are being really careful about when the policies are getting placed? We can break down some of these coverages, but for example, media liability, what do we need to do to best maximize coverage there? Yeah, I mean, this is where the listener might want to take out a post-it note or re- re-listen, right? I'm thinking... This is where one, your broker should shine through, shameless plug, not, you know, but <laughs> definitions and exclusions matter, Linda. I mean, Heather, you guys see this all the time, right? Almost every cyber policy includes an affirmative coverage grant for a multimedia wrongful act. But what does that wrongful act include? If it's just copyright, trade dress, slogan, plagiarism, all of the sort of super basic level one wrongful acts. It's not going to respond because you need both a wrongful act and a covered situation to trigger the policy, right? So you want to make sure that you have invasion of privacy, violation of someone's right to seclusion, potentially personal advertising injury, which sometimes oscillates between GL and media. But you really want to get the broadest possible media liability, wrongful act coverage that you can get. That's not going to be available on every policy. And it's a decision that you're going to have to make with your broker in terms of how much you want to spend. The other next best example I can give you is the definition of confidential information within a cyber policy and the definition of privacy or network security wrongful act. Let's break those down each separately as quickly as possible so we don't take all the oxygen out of the room. Confidential information as defined in a cyber policy is the fundamental element that triggers coverage. So if I've lost a bunch of social security numbers and my policy doesn't include social security numbers within the definition of confidential information, one, your policy sucks, and two, (laughs) you're not going to trigger cover because that's how the four walls of the contract work. And I would argue, Linda and Heather, you have no way of working around that too. So if the definition of confidential information doesn't include my favorite phrasing, which is any non-public information that may trigger a privacy law, that's the best. The policies that trigger including but not limited to and list off a bunch of words, a five or six line paragraph, are not nearly as simple, as beautiful as any non-public information, right? And then the definition of privacy wrongful act on your basic off-the-shelf policies may only include an affirmative data breach perpetrated by a wrong uh, third-party actor, a ransomware incident, a loss of a suitcase. It may not include 
wrongful collection of data by you or one of your vendors on your behalf, because truly that's not a fortuitous data breach event like a hack. It's you or someone you hired decided not to disclose what they were doing in their collection of private data, and therefore you are liable for those actions. So definitions matter, period. Definitions matter. You're preaching to the choir, and it's one of the core themes on Don't Take No for an Answer, which is the words matter. The words in an insurance policy always matter. And you're exactly right. I'm going to pick up on your shameless plug and say you do need somebody like Dave in the seat as your broker because Dave is living and breathing this day in and day out. And the cyber market and the terms and conditions available continue to change on a daily basis. So. For sure, you need to have Dave in your corner when you're negotiating the policy on the front end so you don't get an unhappy surprise on the back end once the claim has been presented. Dave, just touch on the Heather talked before about the data and network liability. What's the most important factor trigger that you need for that coverage grant? The definition of privacy wrongful act or the the definition of privacy incident. You want to make sure that your cyber policy reflects your business practices, right? So if I'm a widget factory manufacturing rulers, I'm not really trading in or dealing with folks' confidential information. If I am, however, a data broker or a marketing agency or an advertising agency that is maybe living on the fringes of what is or is not palatable data practices, I may need to have a really tough discussion with my insurers and my brokers to make sure that we're all on the same page. Because if you don't actually cover what my business is doing, the policy is not going to respond. We're going to have to hire Lowenstein Slam or just try to resolve this coverage dispute. And everyone walks away feeling disappointed. And yeah, there might have to be a discussion, Linda, about like, okay, do we want to pay 50% more for coverage that aligns with what we're doing? Or do we want to just check the box and say that we have privacy cover? The former versus the latter is a more grown-up thing to do. And I will say that the one thing that Heather didn't mention, because I think we're going to touch on it in a second, is if I don't have the coverage for it and I outsource my advertising strategy to an agency, I might just seek their indemnification. And I'll bet you, depending on how big the contract was, they agreed to indemnify. And all of a sudden, ad agency cares about what their policy has to say. Yeah, or... Or the question becomes, how many other indemnifications did they give out? (laughs) Yeah, sure. That too. Yeah. Yeah. What about for the professional liability coverage? You kind of touched on this. What's what are the two real biggies? We know that this is very much case by case, but what are the two real biggies that you need to be looking for if you're going to be counting on your professional liability coverage grant? If you're going to rely on your professional liability coverage grants, you would want to make sure that you have cyber liability coverage within the professional liability policy. And just one important thing to think about here, and often you see cyber coverage embedded within a professional liability policy, and you'd want to make sure that unless there are separate limits, you would want to think about the risk of exhausting the availability of coverage on your professional liability policy for a cyber claim. And so if you choose not to have a standalone cyber policy, it's important to make sure that your professional liability policy has adequate limits or separate limits 
to sufficiently protect against both cyber risks and other professional liability risks, which could often be, you know, large, expensive risks as well. I will just throw in there as a cautionary tale for that advice, which is totally accurate. Just because your professional liability has cyber coverage doesn't mean that your professional liability policy is a cyber policy. Most professional liability policies only cover liability. So third-party claims for defense costs and damages. A cyber policy will respond with all of the sort of critical services you need in a true cyber attack, which I know isn't this chat, Linda, neither, but if you're telling me that your professional liability policy is also your cyber policy, my response to you nine times out of 10 is, okay, but like, it's not going to do anything for you when your server acts on fire. And I hope you know yeah. that. Yeah, no, there's great point to bring up that there's a core difference there. And also, again, though, to remember if you have both, to notice both. It's the patchwork sure. built again coming up. Dave, just a quick question. Are you seeing for the privacy coverage limitations being put on in terms of the number of records covered? And and I did want to amplify a point that you made before that's very important for our listeners to consider, which is insurance is a risk management tool that goes into a broader budget. You've brought up a couple of times now the spend and how much you're going to spend. And I think that companies that have experienced the claim sometimes have buyer's remorse for going for the cheaper option and not having the real coverage there versus some of these bells and whistles that you've talked about really aren't bells and whistles at all. It's giving you the kind of protection you need when a loss is actually going to come. So that was really the context for my question around limits on the number of records that are going to be covered. Yeah. Separate and apart from a sublimit, you know, like where are the carriers starting to nip at that? So we haven't seen, I think that's a really good question. That's a good segue into sort of the crystal ball that Heather and I polished for you. The carriers aren't limiting coverage on a per record basis. It just gets messy and it seems a little disingenuous and it doesn't look good in the court of public opinion. But we are seeing cyber carriers who were the lead intakers on these claims start putting very specific exclusions on their policy, extremely finely crafted words that are excluding claims arising out of not getting adequate consent for some of this uh, type of tracking information, for not following your posted, your own published posted privacy policies, all the sort of non-data breach privacy exposures. And that's what the underwriters are calling it, non-data breach privacy. They're looking to try to cut back on this. And I will tell you, Linda, the reason that they're doing it is not because they don't want to cover it or because they are really just trying to not pay losses. They are doing that because much like the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, the per occurrence fines are just massively uninsurable. So you're talking about wiretapping in some states is a thousand per violation. The Video Privacy Protection Act, which is very much a player in the space, is $2,500 per violation. If you're doing this to 10,000 visitors a day on your website, you're going to first, you're going to exhaust your limit with your own policy in like 30 seconds. And two, the insurance carrier is not going to be able to sustain covering these losses. So we are seeing the class action, the unsavory data collection, the wrongful collection practices coming in. There was always some element of wiretapping excluded on the policy because they're doubling down and clarifying on the language now. And I think in the future, you may not 
be able to get coverage for this specific exposure unless either the laws change because they're kind of archaic or this just gets exhausted and the plaintiff's bar doesn't have any new opportunities to seek damages. Yeah, I mean, archaic or being used in a totally different way than they're intended, some might argue. Heather, let's touch on some of the other key exclusions. Dave touched on a few of them, but what are some of the other key exclusions that we're seeing carriers raise with these claims? Yeah, so we're seeing carriers raise the prior known acts exclusion. So if you get a policy knowing that your company is collecting information that could result in a way that could result in privacy claims or there have been prior privacy claims that you didn't disclose to the insurer at the time that you're obtaining a policy, you know, an insurer is likely to, in, to invoke the prior known acts exclusion. There is often a criminal, intentional or fraudulent acts exclusion. This type of of conduct exclusion, it typically includes language that it doesn't apply unless the conduct is established in a final non-appealable adjudication in an underlying action. So that's something that's important to look for because arguably the insurer would still have a duty to defend until there is a final non-appealable adjudication in, in an underlying action. We are the insurers are invoking breach of contract exclusions media-related exposure exclusions, what they think Dave touched on earlier before, and then exclusions related to gathering or distribution of, of information. And as always, the words matter. I think we've kind of hammered that today, but it is a point that's worth hammering every time because that makes the difference of covered or non-covered claims in many instances. All right. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left here, and I promised our listeners that you would give your predictions about what's going to happen in the market. And Dave, I'll throw it to you first. I'm I'm most interested in how you think the underwriting of these policies on a go forward basis is going to change, if at all, based on these very large claim risk exposures. Yeah, I think that in the short term, we are going to see a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction from the insurers because they're cutting checks on this where they never expected to. Long-term, I see this going a couple of different ways, depending on the carrier, depending on the industry class of the policyholder, et cetera. So your favorite line, it depends. But (laughs) really, I expect a sort of off-the-shelf response to this going forward for non-heavily negotiated contracts to go to a defense cost-only type situation and not covering the damages. If you are absolutely seeking this coverage, you might have to look for it in a very specific market or through a very specific strategy. You can still get TCPA coverage. You can still get like sweepstakes type coverage, right? But you have to go to specialist market. And what those markets are going to look for, Linda, is absolute clarity that you understand what you and your vendors are doing with that tech stack in this context. So there's no more going to be just like, yes, we have adequate consent clauses on our website and we promise that we're doing everything right. They're going to take it apart. They're going to look at it. They're going to make you make representations in the underwriting that will be held against you when the claim comes in. And the most important thing that I can tell your listeners to do now in the current space is just make sure that you're working with a competent a person, a privacy attorney, a media attorney. I don't know who you want to work with. Pick one so that you are collecting consent, making sure that you are doing the right thing by the visitors on your website. Because if not, you may get hit next. And once you have this claim on your history, it's really tough to get the coverage back. Yeah. And Heather, from your point of view, 
Do you see the carriers actively litigating these claims or do you anticipate that there'll be some letter writing back and forth and then ultimately commercial resolution of them? It's a little bit hard to say, but I, I could see insurers litigating these claims because a lot of them are really sizable, large, real claims. And I think that insurers might be hesitant to, to settle some of these claims, but I think we'll have to see where it goes. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us. This is certainly not the last of this conversation since these claims are sizable then the um, the industries that are touched by them is wide and vast. So we'll have everybody back to have a further conversation as these cases and these policies continue to mature. But thanks for joining me today and sharing your insights, knowledge, and predictions. Thank you both. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Linda and Dave. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcasts or find us on Amazon Music. Apple Podcasts, Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, SoundCloud, or YouTube. Lowenstein Sandler Podcast Series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast, and all rights are reserved.